Well. All right, Acts chapter 2. We left off yesterday right, we kind of got into Peter's sermon, so we'll pick up right there. And my goal is to do both of his sermons. He gives another one, chapter 3. So if I'm um, disciplined in my time, we'll do it, which I'm learning to do. By the way, you guys might be wondering, how in the world are we going to get through this whole book in time? We will. The last quarter of the whole book is called Trials, and I really don't want to go too slow through that. So it makes me feel like I'm in jury duty or something. (laughs) Not quite, but um, yeah, all right. So let's begin this morning with prayer. Father, this morning we pray that you would take us and that you would plant us by the rivers of water, that we would become like that tree that the psalmist speaks of, and that our fruit would come forth in its season, and our leaf would not wither, we would not tire, we would not quit, but you would give us that endurance as we're frequently and constantly fed by your steady supply of living water. And let that living water be your spirit, and let it continually fill us and move through us, that we become trees of righteousness with branches of salvation offering shade to every weary sinner we come across to. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Alright, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Now, a real quick recap from yesterday. Basically, the Holy Spirit has descended. It's the Feast of Pentecost. Jerusalem is filled with Jews because it was one of the pilgrimage feasts in which they had to go to Jerusalem to be part of. And the Holy Spirit descends They start speaking in tongues. The people hear them in their own language. The different languages represented, which remember, all the nations listed in verses 9 through 11 show, uh, Luke's already starting to show that salvation is through Christ for all. So all the nations are starting to be included, even though it's right now just Jews. It's going to get to the Gentiles. And um, they're so changed that the skeptics think they're drunk. And that is... um, a lot of the what the Holy Spirit should be through us is such an influencing power that raises us above our normal state that it's as if we're drunk. Now, let me specify what I mean by that. Um, when you're drunk, you're under the influence of something other than yourself. And it, it elevates you, or I guess in drunkenness, it demotes you to something that you're not, something that you don't typically act like. And the Holy Spirit comes in and he elevates you in a positive manner to something greater than what you normally are. A good example is Peter as he stands up here in the midst of the crowds. Remember, you've got the offices of all the the Sanhedrin, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all those PhDs over there looking out the window and you're about to speak to all the nation and um, you don't have an education, you're a bumpkin from the... uh, backwaters of Galilee, and here you are about to give some pretty deep theological information to the country, particularly about the Holy Spirit and about Jesus being the Messiah. And I'm going to say something even more courageous. By the way, you killed him. So Peter is definitely bold, and we see the Holy Spirit giving him that boldness. Now, in our introduction, um, the first class we had, I... (laughs) Oh boy. (laughs) The Spirit is watching. Um, 
<laughs> Not what I wanted him to look like. <laughs> in our introduction, in the first class, um, I talked about how Luke is writing history according to the Greek genre, and this is not um, Old Testament history. He's not simply trying to retell facts, as your typical history would. Um, the Old Testament history and typical history all pivoted on, you might remember, politics and war. That's generally what shapes history. But Luke shows salvation history is shaped not by politics and war, but it's shaped by preaching and by worship. And so we come here in 2 verse 14 to Peter's first sermon, and we're now seeing salvation history shaped by preaching. So we're going to see everything starting to move forward. So here we go into Peter's sermon. Now yesterday, oh, I gave that to you yesterday, so I'm not going to go over that again. But you guys might recall the four characteristics to using speech in the Greek historical genres. That's not fabricated. It was based upon eyewitness events. Um, it always summarized the main points. It's by no means meant to be verbatim, and it's typically recorded in the author's words. So Luke took the main points of Peter's sermon and put them in his own words. So he's pretty much giving us the outline. Now there's two parts to the sermon, okay? I'm going to read through the whole thing, go back and make a couple of important comments, and then we'll move on. So the two parts, you might recall, um, this is, he's, he's giving this, <coughs> excuse me, he's giving this in the form of, of um, a crime scene investigation, if you will. Um, there's something that happens, the people are like, what's going on? They put Peter on the spot, you're drunk, Peter has to defend himself, then he comes after them with, you're really in the wrong by murdering the Messiah. So there's like a defense and then the prosecution. The defense is all the way from 14 to 21. The prosecution begins in verses 22 to the end. So let's read Peter's speech, his sermon. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. You want to know what this is? So I'll tell you. These are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only uh, 9 a.m. in the morning. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You want to know what's going on? That's what's going on. Joel told you what would happen, and it's happening. So now he turns tide. This is the Holy Spirit, not drunkenness. But you, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For even David says concerning him, 
Psalm 16, 8-11 here. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for He is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the way of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. So, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And he would have been pointing just off the Temple Mount to his tomb, which was just there on the hillside. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ, the Messiah, to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, and his flesh did not see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, of which we are all witnesses. And recall, the people here on the Temple Mount were there during the crucifixion and resurrection. Most of them came for Passover and stayed through to the 50 days later to Pentecost. So, we are all brothers, we're all witnesses. Therefore... Being Jesus, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, my Master, implying the Messiah, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And perhaps a parenthetical phrase here. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and parenthesis, for the remission of sins. So, repent for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you, and to your children, and to all who are afar off, maybe the Gentiles, as many as the Lord our God will call. Wow. Peter, the sudden, spontaneous burst of boldness. Um, a couple just uh, comments. I mean, I think it's pretty apparent. Is this guy knew his scriptures? He, he didn't have his sermon prepared. He was he was preaching in response to the people's wondering. So he definitely knew um, the Holy Spirit is definitely inspiring him here. And um, of course, I think you can see the defense. We're not drunk. Fill the Spirit. And then the offense. Jesus is the Messiah. And you guys killed him. Now, there are three um, important components to Peter's message here that I want you guys to see, especially for some of you who may have a gift of teaching or at some point um, do some sort of Bible study, whatever messages. Um, there are three components that are very important in messages, and Peter uses all three right here. The first is, um, what is happening? That's what he addresses right off the bat. People want to know, what is this? This is what it is. Clarify. Define. This is the Holy Spirit, he says. Then the people want to know, well, he's, you know, it's assumed, people always want to know why. Why should we even care about it? Peter lets them know. 
This is happening because the Messiah has already come. But you guys just killed him. And it was evidenced three, four ways. First, his miracles in verse 22. Then his death, which is according to God's purpose in verse 23. And Peter explains that the death was according to God's purpose because people did not expect the Messiah to die. He was going to come to reign. So he had explained, look, the Messiah died, but it was according to God's purpose. This will come out more in his next sermon. Uh, Number three, evidence that he was the Messiah is his resurrection from the dead in verse 24 all the way through verse 32. And you might wonder, um, when he uses Psalm 16 there in verse 25 through 28, was David really writing about Jesus? That he would not see corruption and was he really sitting there with his pen writing poetry in the Psalms and suddenly has this vision of Jesus coming, being put in the grave and rising from the dead and so he recorded it. It's very unlikely that that's what David was actually writing. What, what Peter is saying is he's pulling from that Psalm and he's saying, look, David said you will not allow your Holy One, unspecified person, to see corruption. And Peter points to the tomb and says, Brothers, he's dead. David is in that tomb right there. We can see it. So clearly, David wasn't referring to himself when he said that he won't see corruption. He was referring to another. And so Peter there proposes to them, he was referring by the Spirit to the Messiah. He's the one that was raised. So he's showing them that there's prophetic evidence. And then the fourth evidence that Jesus was the Messiah and why the pouring out of the Spirit is important is that Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God. And that's in verse 33. Of course, again, he pulls from David. Um, if David said, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till your enemies become footstool, Jesus asked the Pharisees this question, whom then is David talking to? David's the king. Who's his Lord? If you're the king, you don't have a Lord. You are the Lord. Everybody bows to you. So who is David talking to? His descendant, the future Messiah. Yahweh said to the Messiah, you can sit at my right hand. And so Peter said, is David in heaven? Reigning? No. But Jesus is. So, again, Jesus was the foreshadowed Messiah. So the two elements, three elements. What is happening? God has poured out the Spirit. Why is this happening? Because Jesus was the Messiah whom you killed, and he went to heaven and gave us the Spirit. And now, the natural question, and this is where the application would come, is, uh, how shall we respond to this important information? What, why, and how? And Peter tells them, repent for the remission of sin. That's your duty. So the three important components of every message. If you guys ever get that chance, yeah, you can incorporate that when you view your little chapter reviews. Oh, I'm giving you guys so much to do now. <laughs> now, when he says repent there in verse 38, and be baptized... Now, we know that repent means to turn from one's sins. Just about faith, turn away, change the mind. But when he says to be baptized, this was a little severe to the Jewish ear because Jews looked at baptism as the process by which a Gentile became a Jew. If you're a Gentile and you want to become a proselyte, which means you convert to Judaism, you would have to go through circumcision and baptism. So baptism was a sign of Jews becoming part of, uh, excuse me, Gentiles becoming part of the Jewish family. So for Peter to tell the Jews to be baptized, they're thinking, wait a minute, buddy. You're talking to Jews here. But you know what Peter's implying by that? 
not just the Gentiles are missing salvation, you guys are too. All of mankind needs to be saved, not just the Gentiles. You too are in this boat. So he's extending the salvation to them. And of course, yesterday we talked about how the giving of the Spirit shows that it's the last days. We're in the time, the Messianic age, as the prophets promised. When the Spirit comes, that's it. Those are the last days. And so there's just that anticipation of being his witnesses until Jesus physically comes to restore the kingdom. Now, we pick up our narrative here in verse 40. So Peter gives out the invitation to come to Christ. And in verse 40, with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. There you have it in verse 40. Clearly, Luke is not recording his whole sermon. He just said, with many other words. So Luke is summarizing here. In verse 41, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. 3,000 souls. You might recall from yesterday the parallel of the giving of the Spirit on Pentecost with the giving of the law at Sinai. And we looked at, at Sinai, God manifested himself as a, as a not just a flame of fire, but a, a big furnace of fire, a mountain belching smoke and sulfur and fire. God revealed himself through the fire, and out of the fire came the voice, right? And so that's how they got the law, the fire, the voice. And here on Pentecost, we see the fire over the apostles' heads, it, it applies there, and we also see the voice speaking from them. And how Luke is perhaps, we are um, propagating that he's pulling from Philo's tradition, that, that Jewish commentator who commentated on the giving of the law at Sinai. And that commentator actually said the words um, that, Then from the midst of the fire that streamed from heaven, there sounded forth to their utter amazement, the Jewish, the, the ones hearing God, to their utter amazement, a voice. For the flame became the articulate speech in the language familiar with the audience. So, of course, it's, it's purely tradition. We don't know if that actually happened. But before Luke's time, Jewish scholarship was writing that when God gave the law on Mount Sinai, the people heard it in their own speech. Didn't they all speak Hebrew? Yeah, but Moses did write about the mixed multitude, about Egyptians going along with the Jews. So, whatever you have... There was this interpretation, and no doubt, Luke is thinking about that as he talks about the spirit, tongues, and everybody hearing it in their own language. So, the reason why, again, um, back to verse 41, 3,000 are saved is because Luke is intentionally linking this to that day on Mount Sinai. The law was given. Um, you might recall, they get to Mount Sinai, and Moses tells all the people, alright, sit tight, I'll be back. And they watch him crawl up the mountain like a little ant. And he disappears into the smoke. Ooh, it was terrifying. The earth was shaking. There's thunders and lightnings and people are scared. Forty days go by. Moses hasn't returned yet. <laughs> and they're thinking, um, this is a great and terrifying wilderness. Our leader just died. Uh, this great God just killed him. What do we do, Aaron? Aaron says, give me your gold, all of it. So he makes a golden calf. Of course, they start um, stripping and dancing nakedly and having a wild party around the calf. We're saved! We're saved! And Moses then comes down the mountain. 
with the law in his hand. And he's furiated. He throws the, the tablets down on the ground, which God just made for him. God's like, oh, great. <laughs> you know, do that again. And Moses then, just like this little tyrant, man, this great silver-bearded man, just running around, and, and he's smashing the altar, or the golden calf into fine pieces, and he throws it in the drinking water. Then he's grabbing women by the nose and men by the beard and saying, drink it. See how idolatry tastes to you now. And they all learn their lesson. And then, in Exodus 32, verse 28, this is where the significant part comes in. Um, I'm going to start in verse 27. Exodus 32, 27. So Moses says to the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And about... 3,000 men of the people fell that day. So, when the law was given on Sinai, 3,000 people die. When the Spirit comes on Pentecost, 3,000 people are saved. I love the parallel. And you know what Luke is saying? The law, which is so important to the Jews, is officially superseded by the giving of the Spirit. And Paul would later write in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, God made us sufficient ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, that's the law, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So here we have it, which is the Spirit supersedes the law. We need the Spirit, not the law. Alright, now... The sermon's over, and now Luke zooms in for us, and we get a behind-the-scenes look at what's going on in the church. So, verse 42. This is the fantastic four features of the Christian fellowship. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all believed... Uh, now all who believed were together and had all things in common <laughs> and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as everyone had need. So, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So, a fantastic four. They're teaching the word. I love that one's mentioned first. Um, the Apostles' Doctrine, of course, Old Testament scriptures are what they have at the time. And they're just setting forth the theology of who Jesus is. This is what Jesus means to us. And secondly, the fellowship. What is fellowship? Because we often confuse this, I think, in the church. We get together and fellowship. We're really just socializing. Talking about the last movie we saw or how good that hamburger is or how uh, Ran and the should cook better or no one can cook better than Randy or sorry Randy if you're ever going to listen to this <laughs> um, <laughs> no I actually he's a great cook that's why I had to rephrase that he, no one can cook better um, so sometimes we call that fellowship in the church um, fellowship is actually shared Christian life 
It's sharing Jesus with one another. And actually, I personally, I don't know if any scholarship supports this, but I personally define fellowship as what John said in 1 John 1.3. He writes and says, That which we have seen and heard of Jesus, we declare to you so that you also may have fellowship with us. So, I'm telling you everything I've heard and seen about Jesus so that you can have fellowship with me. So fellowship is, this is what Jesus said to me, this is what I've seen through the Word, is sharing Christian life together. And third, the breaking of bread. Um, perhaps communion, we think, or maybe just referring to meals. But we do know from Corinthians that their um, communion was a meal. They're sharing a meal together. And often, in Greek culture, um, a meal would be followed by teaching. So they were pretty much probably for church services getting together and eating, doing the Lord's Supper and having a teaching with it. And then, of course, fourth, prayers. And we're going to see that in this next chapter. So, were the Christians practicing communism? All possessions still belong to themselves. They gave it to share. They gave it as need came across. Therefore, that's not communism. They still own their stuff. We know that for sure because in chapter 5, when we see Ananias and Sapphira give willfully their property, the money that they sold from the property, Peter told them, was it not up to you to keep or to give? It's your own property. So Peter wasn't acting like they're supposed to give it as communism would be. He's saying, this is your choice to do. So no, it's not communism. They just had this urgent desire to help each other who were poor. And of course, why are they poor? Perhaps because if you're there visiting Jerusalem totally on your vacation for that specific Feast of Pentecost, and suddenly, bam, the Holy Spirit's poured out, and you're saved, and you have the Holy Spirit in you now, and life is different. Are you just going to like disband from this new collection of believers and just go home? If you want to be a witness of the things that are happening, you want to stay around. And of course, you didn't bring your entire bank account with you. They didn't have ATM cards or anything in the day. They didn't even have credit cards to charge it all to. So eventually, they're going to run out of money. And so what do you do? You pull together. You start sharing resources. You start bumming off the people that live in Jerusalem. So they had to come together and share their stuff. I mean, think about it. If we took a class trip to Jerusalem and Jesus happened to return while we're there, would we be thinking about our flight at 10 o'clock? <laughs> we're like, cancel that thing, we're staying. So that would be um, that's kind of the same thing that's going on there. So chapter 3. Now, we enter into a section where um, we're now all the way up to chapter 8, going to deal simultaneously with two themes. First, the growing opposition from religious leaders coupled with the increasing support from the populace. So opposition and persecution will rise, but the increasing support from the populace, salvation too is going to increase. Um, we're going to see this persecution develop in waves. Remember how when the Holy Spirit came, there was a mighty wind and there's assumption that um, there's a sound from heaven. Assumption that there's probably a shaking that involved, as there was at Sinai. Um, I want you guys to imagine a tsunami, an earthquake. The initial impact shakes, and then the wave is coming. Now, in the instance of Acts, the persecution is that tsunami that's coming, and 
Nothing happens after Peter's first sermon. Everyone, you know, people get saved. No opposition. But the waves are coming. And the first one's going to be a little slap on the wrist. Stop talking the name of Jesus. Don't do that again. Well, then the second one comes. And it's a whip to the back as they beat the apostles the second time. And then the wave gets bigger as we see with Stephen. It's a stone to the head. And then finally we see Saul come out with full force, breathing murderous threats against the saints. So you see the increasing persecution. Slap to the wrist, whip on the back, stone to the head, and then Saul unleashing um, hell, if you will, (laughs) on the church. The closest we'll ever get to it. So, (laughs) alright. Verses 1 through 10. We see a man get healed. Luke is going to pull... The lens we just zoomed in, the behind the scenes in verses 42 through 47 of chapter 2, Luke's going to pull two themes out of that and magnify them here in chapter 3. Namely, one, uh, it said they attended the temple worship. You saw that in 2 verse 46. So continuing daily is one accord in the temple. And then the second is the mighty works of the apostles, which he said there in verse 43, that there are many wonders and signs. So here we see them. Chapter 3, verse 1. Attendance at temple worship. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That's 3 p.m. Now, in the Pentateuch, Moses told the people to have two burnt offerings every day. One in the morning, one in the evening. And Josephus, a Jewish historian from this time, says that the third hour was the evening sacrifice. So, here is um, uh, Peter and John. I always want to say James and John. Of course, the brothers. Uh, Peter and John go to the temple. And what Luke is showing here is they're doing what normal Jews did. Why is that significant? Do you recall from our introduction that one of the purposes to the book is an apologetic purpose? Paul's, or Luke's apologetic purpose is to show Roman society that Christianity is a legitimate religion. Because at the time, people didn't count new things as legitimate. You were legitimate by your age. And Judaism was legitimate. It was an established state religion. But Christianity, what is this weird sect of weirdos? So he's showing, look, it came right out of Judaism. In fact, the early apostles, they didn't call themselves Christians they saw themselves as the perfected form of Judaism, the plan that God ultimately had along. So here they are, practicing Jews, going to the temple just like everyone else. And um, Luke is just pointing this out for us to see. Christianity branched, he's trying to show them, look, there's Judaism and Christianity to branch off of it. It's a legitimate religion. Of course, that's the perspective. In reality, Judaism branched off of Christianity. Christianity is the main stem. And we talked about that in the past. So, that's Luke's intent there. Now, in verse 2, we start to see the mighty works of the apostles. A certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they had daily laid at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. What a great place to be. You need a bum for money? Sit in front of the temple. All of them wanting to be pious and, um, you know, God, uh, take our offering today and we're being extra religious and good and giving to the poor. A great place. People are more prone to give right there. And verse 3, we don't, of course, we don't know where the gate beautiful is, but it's somewhere on the temple mount. And seeing Peter and John, the lame man, 
about to go into the temple, he asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us, implying that he looked away. Um, So, he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I don't have, sorry buddy, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Suddenly his voice echoes in the courtyard, and hundred eyes are looking at him. Oh, I hope this works. <laughs> and so, in verse 7, he took him by the right hand, praying the whole time, I'm sure, lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they then knew that it was he who sat for begging alms at the gate beautiful of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. And I would be too. <laughs> There's the story. Uh, I love how Peter looks at the guy and says, Silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have is Jesus. I will give that to you. Um, there's a story of Thomas Aquinas. I'm sure you've heard it before. He, he was one of the biggest scholars back in the medieval times for the Catholic Church. And um, he was called upon by the Pope, who was in his office counting all the coins. And of course, in this time the Catholic Church was a rich, rich institution. And um, Thomas Aquinas comes in and the Pope looks at him, oh, come in. And he's flick, you know, stacking the coins, click, 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 <laughs> like people do their poker chips. And uh, he goes, you see, Thomas? No longer does the church have to say, silver and gold we have not. And then Aquinas kind of looked sad and and looked at the Pope and said, then neither can the church say, rise up and walk. I think it's so true. As we've enriched ourselves, we do have silver and gold, and Jesus has become mm, secondary theme. Guys, let us not um, prioritize the silver and gold in the church and get, get carried away with, we need the high-def big screens. I mean, those are totally good, totally helpful, because they, that's what our culture is about. Um, but is, is it the point to the point where we say, we can't do ministry because we don't have the screen. We don't have a sound system. Our worship leader has one key of M. That's what, you guys might hear Mike say that sometimes. He says, I sing in the key of M, of Mike. <laughs> Monotone. Um, you know, we say, we don't have things, but never forget that what we do have is Jesus. And that is the number one need that people have and that we can give. So, um, yes, maybe God will bless us with silver and gold, but let us always say we have Jesus and that we primarily give to you. So, now, everyone's looking around at Peter. Look what you did! In verse 11, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, (laughs) thank you, thank you, All the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. And Peter sees this and says, Oh boy, I need to clarify something one more time. So he offers his second sermon. Once again, defense, offense. The little crime scene investigation. What happened? This is what happened. Detective Peter's going to tell you. So, uh, But I do like that he... He instantly, you'll see this in the sermon, gets the eyes off of him. I didn't do it. 
Because, of course, Jews thought, like with prophets, that the miracles were performed because of their great piety. God looked at them um, and saw their great righteousness, and therefore God was required to listen to them, to do what they wanted because of how great of a person they were. And Peter's going to say, hey, I'm an average guy like you. I just have the Holy Spirit. And remember, Acts is showing us the acts of Jesus by His Holy Spirit through His apostles. So Peter's putting all the attention. Jesus did this. So here we go. The defense, verse 12. Um, Actually, let me back up. I do want to say one thing about this sermon. Um, The first one, salvation resulted, no opposition came. In this sermon, salvation is going to result, but we're going to get some opposition as well. And it's going to be the little slap on the wrist. The first wave is going to come. So you can imagine, commotion. There's a lame guy leaping like a gazelle. (laughs) Um, By the way, Luke might have grabbed that phrase from Isaiah 35.6 where it says, The lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Referring to the messianic age that Luke is trying to show has been ushered in. So it's kind of cool. He talks about the lame man leaping. The lame shall leap like a deer. So anyways, there he is leaping around like a gazelle. The people are gathering around. And it's supposed to be during the time of um, sacrifice. And you can see the priests and the Sadducees. And and, um, maybe some like, you know, the Sadducees up there in their office looking out the window going, Who is this nincompoop down there? This average little fisher guy. Who is this guy? And they're looking out the window listening. And Peter starts to say, so the opposition is going to come. They have, he has their attention. So Peter sought, verse 12, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or, or why look so intently at us, as though by our own power or godliness we made this man to walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, note that word, I'll get to it later, his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Eek! Pointing the finger once again at them. You did it. Now, that's the defense. The attack is going to start here in verse 14. He's going to keep poking the finger at them. But I want to point out as we read it on three ironies that Peter uses. He's going to show Israel's iniquity through three ironies. Alright? The first we just read in verse 13. He said, You delivered Jesus up and denied him when Pilate was determined to let him go. Pilate wanted him to go, be free, but you determined to have him put to death. So he's showing. There was a total opposite thing going on there. The second one is in verse 14. The attack continues. (laughs) But you denied the Holy One and the just or righteous and asked for a murderer to be granted to you instead. You see that? You denied the righteous, the just, the Holy One and you wanted the murderer released instead. And then the third is in verse 15. You killed the Prince of Life or the author of life whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. (laughs) He's the author of life and you killed him. And then God just raised him back to eternal life. So there's some ironies Peter's trying to point out. You guys, it wasn't even making sense what you did. Contradicted all of your actions and it was sin. Pointing the finger three times there. And verse 16, he continues on. 
in his name, Jesus, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through Jesus has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance. As did also your rulers. Oh, it's a soft side of Peter. Like you killed him, but it was in ignorance. And because, verse 18, those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. So, the point of my sermon is, repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who is preached to you before whom heaven must receive as he was ascended into heaven till the times of restoration of all things the future kingdom which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began so exhibit A for the holy prophets he's using um, an example from Moses for Moses truly said to the fathers, Deuteronomy 18, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that, capital P, prophet, shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. He, he's saying uh, Jesus is that prophet. And so, verse 25, you are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. So, there is a severely debated passage here, verse 19, 20, 21. It's the most, um, it's the passage that brings the most controversy of all of Luke's theology, is what's the deal with this restoration? And of course, we've talked about it. Physical kingdom, no physical kingdom. But the one that I have a big question on is in verse 19, where he says, Repent, that your sins may be blot out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Um, thus, we think that's talking about the restoration of the kingdom. Is Peter saying, as it seems, that you need to repent, Israel, so that the kingdom can come? In other words, is the kingdom not yet established because you guys are yet to repent and accept Jesus as your Messiah? I'm, I'm just going to be frank with you. I don't. I don't know. Um, I don't know if what he's saying is when you repent, Jesus will return and bring the kingdom, or if he's saying when the kingdom comes, then you will repent. Because when I read the Bible, it seems to say both. For example, Deuteronomy 30 verse one. Now it shall come to pass. When you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today and your children with all your heart and with all your soul 
skipping to verse 5, then, so when you return to the Lord, when you repent, then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Sounds like a repent, then restore. And, but then you have the vagueness of Romans 11, where Paul talks about. Remember the imagery of the fig tree? And the, wild, the natural branches being broken off Israel, and the wild branches, Gentiles being grafted in? Well, Paul is, that's the context, and Paul says, Now, if Israel's fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more shall their fullness be? In other words, when Israel does believe in the Messiah, if we're blessed as Gentiles because Israel's rejected the Messiah, when they do accept him, how much better is that going to be for everyone if their rejection is blessing us? Um, so he's talking about there's going to be an uh, increase in quality of life when Israel repents, the coming of the kingdom, uh, Romans 11:15. For if being cast away is the reconciling of the world, so if casting Israel aside is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance of Jesus be but life from the dead. See, he's showing you that if it's good while Israel rejects Messiah, how much better is it going to be when they do accept him? And then he concludes Romans 11, 25 and 26. I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness, and this is a mystery, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, when that happens, all Israel will be saved as it is written, the Deliverer, Isaiah 59, the Deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. So there it sounds like the kingdom's going to come, then they're going to repent. Zechariah 10, remember, talks about they will, actually I think it's chapter 12, verse 10, talks about when the Messiah comes, they will look upon him whom they pierced and mourn as one mourns for his only son implying repentance. But Peter here talks about repent so that the kingdom can come. If you're sitting there going, which is it? I'm saying the same thing. Which is it? So there you have it. Give you both sides of scripture. Um, but I want to finish this... Ooh. Ah. Okay, I want to finish this morning with this issue. Verse 18. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer... Where did it say that, the Jews must have wondered. Where did the Old Testament say Messiah would suffer? Judaism did not see a suffering Messiah. The Messiah was to come to reign, to conquer, to bring the kingdom. So, where in the world did this passage about Messiah's suffering come in? Um, later, later, Jewish thought started to say there's two messiahs, the ruling messiah, the suffering messiah. So two different people are going to come and accomplish two things. But Christianity, and Peter's saying here, is unique in that they said the messiah who's going to rule is the messiah who's going to suffer. And nowhere in the Old Testament to the Jewish mind did it say messiah will suffer. So then you're wondering how did the church and how do we interpret Messiah passages that talk about his suffering relating to Jesus? How did Peter get to the point to say, the prophet said the Messiah will suffer? How did he get there? Answer? 
Jesus himself said so. That's a good answer. Remember on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples he's talking to in Luke 24? He says this to them, O foolish ones, you so slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. What do they speak? Ought not the Christ, the Messiah, to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then, beginning at Moses and the prophets, he showed them all the things concerning himself. So Jesus himself said, the Messiah to suffer. But where are these passages? The answer comes in verse 13. Remember I told you to mark that word servant? This is where Peter gets the church's theology that the Messiah will suffer. He said that God glorified his servant Jesus. Isaiah has a collection of prophecies that we call the servant of Yahweh prophecies. They talk about God's servant. And in those collection of prophecies is the famous chapter that you guys know well, Isaiah 53. And we talk about that saying the Messiah will suffer. Well, Isaiah 53 actually doesn't talk about the Messiah. It's talking about God's servant. But by here saying that Jesus is God's servant, Peter is taking those servant passages in Isaiah and saying the Messiah who's to reign and the servant who's to suffer are the same person. They're not separate people. They're one and the same. Jesus is the Messiah and he is the suffering servant of Isaiah. A couple examples of what those verses say. Isaiah 42.1 Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. Remember Jesus said, the spirit is sent upon me to give good news. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Ooh. Isaiah 52 verse 13 Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted, resurrection, and extolled and be very high. Isaiah 53, verse 11. And of course we know this very well. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So, that's a little bit of Peter's theology there. And we conclude in chapter 4. We're going to do the first four verses. Sermon's over. Now as they spoke to the people, a little after talk, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. So, there you go. Opposition is increasing, growth is increasing, where it's already beginning to happen. And they're sitting in a dungeon cell, and we'll find out what happens to them tomorrow. So, Father, um, thank you for this study and the students and the call that you gave them. Give them energy to persevere, always, through all opposition. May we remember that you are the suffering servant, and that we can follow your way into even a suffering life and still find joy there because you went before us. In Jesus' name, we pray.